Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with a peer and leave us a review. My guest today is Satmeet Singh, CEO of Par Technology, a billion-dollar market cap publicly traded point-of-sale software business serving the restaurant industry. I've actually been following Savneet's career since college when he went on Invest Like the Best, talking about acquiring software businesses through his holding company, Terra. Through that work, he connected with Par, joining the board, and eventually replacing the CEO at the time. Since then, he's turned the business around and is finding much more success. Savneet and I talk about turning around teams, management techniques he's developed, his role as teacher and chief communicator at Par, and his views on software businesses from an investor perspective. Please enjoy this fantastic episode with Savneet Singh. Every CEO and entrepreneur needs support from a team of expert professionals like attorneys, bankers, and accountants like Hood & Strong. Less often mentioned, but just as important, is insurance. And August Felker and his team at Oberly Risk Strategies are the experts you need on your team to navigate the insurance needs of your company, as dozens of past podcast guests have partnered with them to do. Oberly helps you evaluate what your current and soon-to-be-acquired company needs for insurance today, while also anticipating what it will need tomorrow. To get in touch, email august at august.felker at oberly-risk.com or visit their website at oberly-risk.com. And now for some advice and observations on insurance for small companies, here's August himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. Can I just roll the insurance from the company I just acquired into my ownership of that business? That's a great question. So one of the questions we get from our clients a lot is, you know, hey, can't we just take the existing insurance that's there and just keep it through the ownership transition? And the answer really is, is not typically. First off, insurance is not assignable. So they, the insurance carriers that insure the current business want to make sure they know the owners of that current business, what that current business does. So they, they don't allow for the insurance program to automatically be assigned to another entity. And that would be the case if it was an asset deal. So in an asset deal, 9.9 times out of 10, the insurance carriers will require a brand new insurance program to be created. And so that, that's something to really think about and know and get started on ahead of time. In a stock deal where the, um, sort of the I would say the FEIN, FEIN stays the same throughout the ownership transition, a lot of the insurance carriers still have protection because they want to make sure they know who that new owner is and are uncomfortable about just um, continuing to insure someone through through an ownership transition. So they have like these change in control clauses where if there is a change in ownership, they have the right to cancel the policies. So those are two big things to look out for as you're, as you're buying a business is to get started early because more times than not, the insurance is going to need to be rewritten. Great. Thank you, August. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood & Strong and Ravix Group for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I'm really excited to chat with you because there was a, a podcast you did on Invest Like the Best several years ago. It was talking about Terra Holdings at the time, which was your software holding company and of course your 
your role has evolved to CEO of PAR, but what was the idea behind Terra? And then how did you go from Terra to the, the PAR role you have today? Yeah, it was pretty simple. I think early on, my partner Ro and I had this vision of creating, you know, the next version of Constellation software. Both he and I had studied Constellation for a long time. We used to, I remember when we first discovered it, I like literally a hard copy of one of his letters. And I was like, dude, you got to read this. This is incredible. I remember writing emails to my friends and saying, if, you know, Warren Buffett was 30 years old, he'd just be buying enterprise software, he'd be building this thing. And so, you know, we had this idea, Ro, Ro was a successful investor. I was a, an operator who had, you know, some bent to investing and said, let's go find these businesses, you know, potentially, you know, run them decentralized, but figure out points of centralization. You know, we went out we, and tried to go, you know, find these businesses. And, you know, it was a little bit random, but we stumbled across PAR, I want to say in 2017. And, you know, originally they weren't that interested part of the small software division. I thought, you know, hey, can we carve this thing out of PAR? And that sort of get going. About a year after that, PAR reached out about joining the board. As you know, PAR was sort of still really early in its software journey, less than 10 million of revenue, but, you know, saw the writing on the wall. And I got on the board of PAR and then, you know, PAR got in a lot of trouble. We were in a real mess. We thought we might run out of money. And so I ended up parachuting into the CEO and it just kind of, you know, it wasn't by intelligent design. I think it was a little bit of like solving a problem and then realizing there was a great opportunity and, and we went forward. So, you know, it was just sort of one of those things that, that worked out, but none of us planned it to be that way. Did you get invited on the board because you were active or talking with the management team often or getting to know them? How that No, happen? no. You know, they had heard my name from a fund that was an investor. And originally, you know, they didn't take any interest in it because, you know, the company had a large shareholder, which is the founder who, you know, I think him, the, the CEO didn't really care too much about what investors felt as far as, you know, suggestions for people to join the board. But somehow one of them, you know, read something or knew, had somebody that knew me and, and, and then they reached out. And, you know, I done a lot of work on the company because I'd met them a year ago or reached out to them a year ago about, you know, trying to, you know, do something. And so when they asked me, I was like pretty, you know, fluent in sort of saying, hey, here's how I would run the business. Here's what I would change. And it was great because I think they appreciated the transparency that, and, and the perspectives that I had while also realizing, you know, I probably would be the silent guy. And then, you know, I went through the traditional interview process, but, you know, it was, it was really random. Like the fund that recommended, you know, I didn't have like a long-term relationship with, I hadn't been on a board with before, you know, it was one of those things where dots connected again, very, very much through happenstance. And so what was your role on the board initially before challenges with finding a CEO happened? So, you know, I was just an independent director, you know, I was on some committees and it was a little bit crazy. I remember getting on the board and, you know, there, there were, there were noises around PARC, you know, there was a DOJ and SEC investigation for bribery and corruption under a prior CEO who was still working at the company as chief of staff to the current CEO at the time. So it was a little bit like an interesting dynamic. The company's products at the time were majority hardware and services led, but it had this emerging software division. And, you know, within the first couple months of joining the board, it was very clear to me that something was wrong. You know, we had another activist come into the stock, started demanding changes. We had this sort of DOJ SEC thing. We had, you know, I was getting angry emails as a board member from customers. And I'm like, that's really weird because who emails a board member when they've got a problem with a product? And so I had asked the, the board at the time, can I go meet the management team and see what's going on? What's like, what's happening here? And I was really naive. I was super young. I was 33 or 34. And so I went and I met the management team. And I came back to the board and I really passionately said, we should sell the company. And I said, you know, I've only been here for a couple months and I'm definitely the least experienced, but, you know, I don't know if this is a problem we can fix. 
I remember meeting the management team and asking all 10 or 12 folks I mentioned, what's the plan? Like, what's, and, and there just wasn't an aligned plan. Really good, high quality people, but a misalignment on like, what is actually the goal of the company? And then I remember like, asking, you know, what's the best job you've ever had? And not one person said their current job, which I thought was crazy because I was on the comp committee. Like I figured somebody would lie to me and be like, oh, this is the best job I've ever had. You know, literally non-existent. And then as I dug deeper, you know, it was really clear to me that while we, the business, software business was growing, it was grossly mismanaged. We were pushing out product once or twice a year, which for an enterprise product is pretty bad. Uh, you know, you want to constantly update, release, give your customers what they promised. The customer NPS was like a negative 50 or 60. The employee NPS was negative 50 or 60. And so you had this weird thing, which was management wasn't aligned. They weren't totally happy. The customers weren't happy. Employees weren't happy. And then underneath it all, we were losing a ton of money. We had two activist shareholders, a DOJ and SEC investigation. Like it was just a lot. And I said, like, you know, this doesn't seem like a fixable thing. Let's try to sell the company. At the time, I think the rest of the board, you know, we was sort of like, let's go find a new CEO and see if we can turn the thing around. And so we went out and hired a search firm to find a CEO. And, you know, inevitably, we didn't really find one to step in. And so when I became the CEO, my mandate wasn't to run the company. It was to run the company, but it was really to run the company to be sold. We'd already hired investment bankers to sell the company. And so I was thought I thought I'd sit there and, you know, manage the sale process. But, you know, literally on the first day, I'll never forget the CFO, who's still our CFO today, came in and said, we've got 10 weeks of cash left. You know, 70, is that enough time to sell the company? And I was like, we're not even going to finish the management meetings. Like, we're not going to sell the company. Plus, we got all these investigations. Like, it's going to be a long process. And so it was the scariest moment at the time. But now I think the most fortuitous one in my life and that it forced me to dig in because I was like, I don't want to be the CEO of a company that goes bankrupt. And so we dove in and, you know, within 10 or 12 days, we made a plan to unfortunately lay off like 20% of the workforce. You know, within a month, we renegotiated some of our credit agreements. You know, we worked really hard to clean and simplify while the bankers looked to sell the company. And fast forward a couple more months, the bankers came back and couldn't find anyone to pay more than our stock price at the time. And so, you know, they, but they came back to me and said, Hey, you know, if you want to stay, we think we could finance you. We kind of have heard about you. We know about you. And by then I had gotten really convicted on a few things. The, the first was that I really did believe the problem was, was solvable because I'd spent the time with the people, the product. And to me, all problems are people problems. And I said, this is, this is solvable. It's a hard one, but we've got to go through it. And the second observation I had was software was eating the restaurant and the restaurant just didn't know it yet. And that got me really excited about the long-term opportunities, which is when you're in a market that has the beginning of digital disruption, if you are that, that, that sort of plant the flag solution, you're that platform solution, like there's a great potential outcome here. And I thought that, you know, our product Brink had that opportunity. And then the third was that the team, the employees, the company started to rally. Like we had solved a lot of problems in a short period of time. And I felt pretty excited that we could, we could get the team to rally around this. And so it was a combination of those factors that said, Hey, like maybe we can make something out of this. And so when the opportunity came, I said, sure, I'll, I'll stay and we'll try to build some something. And, and very much like the, the, the values we created for the company, then the mission vision, it's all sort of stayed the same. The people have changed, the energy has changed, the size of the company has changed, but we, we still kind of aligned on that same strategy we had five, a little over five years ago. I mean, with only 10 weeks of cash remaining, like timing is so important. Like being able to move quickly to fix that is huge. How did you make sure you were moving quickly and moving things, doing things fast? You said you accomplished a lot in a short period of time. What did that look like? I mean, anyone who works with me knows my only speed is urgency. And so, you know, I remember we founded it and, you know, I said, Brian, we need everybody in the office now. And so everybody, they weren't at the office, they came in and we said, like, we got to identify it today. And so we, I remember going person by person, figuring out what can you give? What can you give? What can you give? And then you're saying, all right, that's what you can give. This is what I need and come back 
And, you know, we did it. And we, it was like literally one night we figured out where we we're going to get the cost. And then I said, okay, if you all can deliver on that, I'm going to go deliver on working with our banks. And so I remember going to citizens with our bank at the time, I think, or whoever it was and, and started working on them and said, Hey, I need a little breathing room. I need breathing room. Like this is going to be better for you. It's going to be better for us. Like give us that room to, to figure this out. And then, you know, I remember going through our assets said, okay, we can sell this business. We can sell this. And so it's just like having an aggressively aggressive plan. And it's reflexive because once you can prove to your lenders that you can cut costs and then you can sell something like they're going to give you a little more leeway, a little more leeway. And so it's that, that obsession of urgency that really got us going. You know, one of the, th- the things we did early on or back then was we created a, a set of values for the company and we made them really, really tough. You know, I always joke, go find a company's values who you disagree with. Like it's hard to find because, you know, when you see a list of eight or nine values on a wall, you pretty much stay like, yeah, I, I, I'm curious. I'm high integrity. Like I, I'd fit here. I'd fit here. And, you know, we at PAR said, let's find the values that are actually specific enough where you say, I may not be a good fit. And so we made these early values, which were speed, ownership, and winning. And since then, we've added another and, and added them a bit. But it, it made it really precise. So, like, you know, if you were coming from a fancy, fancy tech company, and to you, culture meant, like, free coffee and, like, fun environments. And then you saw our values, which were, like, speed, ownership, and winning. You kind of knew you, weren't getting, you were not getting into a unique situation. And the reason we did that was because we wanted to not only attract talent that like wanted that obsession of ownership, wanted to like build a career through intensity, but we also wanted to take scare out the people that were already here that said, "Hey, I'm not. This is this is very different." And that was a big part of creating that urgency across the company. Even to this day, when I do my annual reviews for our team, you know, the first question is, "How do they line up with our values?" And you know, I always get really frustrated when someone's like, "I want to talk about culture and how we work together." And I'm like, you know, th- that's a derivative of first of like, do you know the values? Because the nice person doesn't always subscribe to the values that we at par need to be successful. And so, you know, I just wrote this email to our whole company about like the day one intensity that Jeff Bezos talks about. But to me, it's just going back to those values. And every year, remember like, okay, we got to start there. We got to start there because as you get bigger, you get lazier, you get more comfortable and stasis kicks in. How do you retain speed over time? Is that a factor of systems being better, flatter management structure, just hiring people who move more quickly? Like what are the dimensions that go into keeping a, a speedy company? So I think there's two aspects. So, so the first is actual structural. I, I do think that people always think it's people and it's culture, but structure matters a lot. One of the things, and probably the most debatable thing, I think that people, you know, argue with me the most at par is running relatively decentralized. You know, we run in business units that are connected at the top, but we run in business units because it creates accountability lower in the organization. You know, if you have an organization that has four or five products and you just have a CPO, a CRO, a CCO, you know, so many decisions flow up to like one human being. And that's really tough. You know, there's an escalation and it's like, well, who's the tiebreaker? Well, it's going to be the CEO. It's going to be me answering all those questions. And so structure helps a lot in creating speed. You push those decisions down. And what I like about a decentralized environment is not that it just helps you go faster because there's somebody that owns each one of those P&Ls or, or deliverables, but also helps you discover talent because if there's an emerging talent and you can throw them into a, a role that they have a complete accountability on much earlier in their career actually discover are they ready for it versus waiting for them to climb the ranks for 15 or 20 years and then give them the shot. And so I like giving him or her that opportunity much earlier. So that's one. And, and again, when you create an, a structure like that, well, guess what? It attracts people who want to get the job quicker. You know, one of the things that's happened to that is there's now three, four people at par who are younger, more motivated, that keep me on my toes nonstop where I'm stressed out every day because I know they're better than me. Um, so, so one structure, and I can talk about that forever, but operating structures to me really are the best way to keep speed. The second part is people. I think you have to 
you know, expressly look for people that operate with that speed. And that speed doesn't mean careless, doesn't mean you're sacrificing quality, but there are people that understand that we need to make those decisions, not because we're doing it for, for speed's sake, but it's, it sort of becomes the, the, the way the company operates. And so, you know, to me, those are the two things we've, we kind of always do. And, and, you know, a lot of what our mistakes have been is like when we forget that and we get confident and cushy with somebody and we like them, but we don't have the awkward conversation. Is that person actually moving fast enough to maintain the rest of the organization? So that structure with the business units, trying to push decision-making down further, what iterations have you had within that structure? Has it always been that way or was it centralized at one point point? then you decentralized? What are some of the, the stages for structure at par? Well, I think it's all about, so when I got there, everything was functional. So, you know, there was one head of sales, one head of this, one head of that. And, you know, I originally broke it up into software and hardware. And the idea there was pretty simple. The person selling hardware is very different than the person selling software because they're selling to very different buyer personas. And so why are we clumping it all together? Similarly, like if you kind of continue to peel that onion, if you're a finance person that's only dealt with hardware businesses, like you don't know the KPIs, metrics, leading indicators that I need to know for a software business and vice versa. If you're a marketing person and you're, you have an emerging, you know, part, I think, you know, our ARR was less around 10 million bucks, but our revenues were 5 million bucks in software when we took over. You know, if you're the marketing person and you've got $200 million of hardware and services and $5 million of software, like, where's your attention going? The product that's bigger, but not the product that has the enterprise value and the value of the company. And so, you, you know, we started out very functional and we moved to very decentralized. Now, the hard part is now that we're bigger and we have lots of products that have captured market share, you have the opposite problem, which is everybody internally, you know, sort of goes and says, hey, like, I talked to that customer and they talked to that customer. And now it's confusing because they have two different par salespeople. And that's the healthy tension I, I, I candidly like to have because the question is like, okay, let's, let's have one salesperson cover that account. And, you know, there's two obvious reasons to do that. One is expense, right? You could probably save by having a little bit less, a few salespeople, but you still need a specialist in each product. And so I'd argue the savings aren't always that great. Uh, but two is you create simplicity for the company, customer. But then I always think about, is the customer actually getting a better experience? Because they're now talking to a generalist who's not really an expert on either product, who's going to then connect them to an expert on the other hand. And so both models work. But I constantly ask these questions to our team all the time, which is, yes, it may look confusing, but is a customer actually getting a better outcome? You know, I always think that when I get an number for an airline, and if I have a request like change my this or that, like I'd rather just have the direct line to like the problem that I want than to a generalist who's going to move me here and move me there. But that doesn't always make sense. And so, you know, we've gone through the point where I'm like, I don't really care if there's three salespeople calling on McDonald's. Like I want the one that gets the order and that's the winner to let's be a little more unified. Let's be you know, make sure we have great data to make these decisions. And so we keep that healthy tension all the time and it'll never go away. What other areas of, of healthy tension have you tried to nurture around at par? So I think there's that, that tension comes from urgency. I think you have to every year work really hard on creating a strategic plan that the organization gets aligned to. And then the tension I think comes from the ability to push things out faster. So I'll give you an example. Every year, you've got a product roadmap that needs to get delivered. And every year, you'll have a big win or an outage or something that puts a massive wrench in that, in that, in that roadmap. And so inevitably, someone says, hey, we got to change the roadmap. And so what's your job as the CEO? Well, your job is to say, well, let's be and people, not or people. How do we do both things? And so you're always creating that tension of like, how do you do more with the resources you have? And you fight, you're constantly fighting that battle inter-year, every single year. The one that I think is, is hardest for you know scaling companies is do you put that extra dollar into go, go to market or do you put it in product? And you're constantly figuring that tension. And so I like putting tension on going to our team and saying, where do we want to invest that extra dollar? 
if we had another $500,000 budget, are we putting it to sales or putting marketing or putting product? Where do you want it? And, you know, we create that tension at our under annual operating plan because it forces everybody to make that ROI decision because you, you get yourself ingrained that dollars are finite and a dollar to you is a dollar going away from, from that other side. And where do you think it should go best? And so that's the other place. This is like, I think there's always a little bit of tension on budgeting because you, you got to force people to own the ROI of those decisions. And so when a marketing person says, Hey, I need an extra X million dollars for our marketing plan. I'm like, okay, so are you signing up for adding $10 million in new sales? The money's yours. And so, you know, I like to create attention on the, the financial asks. Is there a, an incentive model that helps accelerate that too, or, or give a tailwind to some of those, you know, where's the extra dollar going type decisions? I think the best one is, is equity comp. You know, when you teach everybody to be an allocator, one of the cool things I think we've done at par that I now see other companies doing is with our product and technology team, I oftentimes show this to investors, you know, we allocate our team's time into how much time are we spending on feature development, like new products, how much time is going on to maintenance, how much time is going to tech debt, how much time is going on to integrations. And the reason we do that is so that we know, okay, if we're putting more money into integrations and feature development, that's like new stuff. We put stuff into maintenance and tech debt, that's sort of old stuff. And you have this, you know, healthy sort of like tension of what's the right formula. You know, you always want some money going to tech debt because you want to make sure your product stays scalable. But you also want to balance that with how much new stuff, and how much feature development, so on and so forth. And the reason we do that is partly because I, we want to know how we're operating this company, but also it ingrains into the individuals that are running those product teams that they're actually allocating capital like a CEO at their level. And so my, you know, if one of our products has way more money going into integrations, I'm like, well, you must be taking a lot of revenue live because we'd only be doing all this time in integrations in the event that we had a bunch of revenue that depended on those integrations. And, or you say, hey, you got a ton of money in feature development. So next year's you know, operating plan, I suspect revenue is going to be up a bunch because you're building all these new products. And so it creates an al- you know, it creates objectivity around these decisions because the hardest thing is like, oh, we have to invest in this thing. And when you put it into, you know, particularly in engineering, right? If you're a CEO of a tech company and you're not fluent in software, it's really hard to know like what's a have to, what's a must. What's a need. Like, those are really, you know, you're having a salesperson saying, we got to do this. You'll have the product and technology team. We have to do this. We got to integrate all these things. And you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more saying like, let's not let the anecdote be the judge. Like, let's put some objective metrics on it. And the anecdotes matter. They really do matter, particularly the anecdotes that are coming from the customers that are forward thinking. But let's put some data around it and figure out, okay, like if we're going to spend this much money on new features, we all are signing up for a lot more revenue coming these subsequent years. Otherwise, we wouldn't do this. Is there an example that comes to mind recently of, of that? You know, where does the, is there ROI in this new feature or solving this piece of tech debt? Is there something that comes to mind as a kind of top of mind example? Oh, there are many. In Q2 of this year, we had our worst gross margins in probably two years. And it was a surprise to investors and it sucked. And a lot of it was the lack of scalability within one of our products, Punch, which, you know, just it, it had outages because it was being used so much. So it's, it's, a, it's one of those problems that sucks because, you know, we had customer credits, you know, customers didn't get what they wanted. And it was painful because you don't, you can't make up a gross margin as, you know, for the rest of the year. Like when you're giving a credit out and you can't charge in revenue, like it's like a double whammy. You can't make it up. So if you're, if you're, if your compensation as example is tied to EBITDA, like it's tough to make that up. And the, the decision you, you make before that happens is, all right, we're going to have to make a major investment early on so that we can get our gross margins back to where they need to be. So we can make our product scalable. You know, when you build a software product that, that scales, most people never envision how large it's going to be. And so you don't build the scale for it to, to run that way. In our business at, at par, you know, we had this massive growth in convenience stores that were using our loyalty product. 
And convenience stores use our product remarkably different than restaurants. They use a way more, super high ROI to them. And so it was pounding our system to the point that we hadn't built the system for it. And so we made this investment into our DevOps infrastructure that we continue to make today. That's super hard because we as a team are now saying we're going to take money away from sales, from marketing to go build better internal infrastructure so we can scale that product. That's a long-term ROI one. I'll give you another example that's a little bit easier to understand. We acquired a product in September, I believe, of 2022, and it's an online ordering product for restaurants. And, you know, I would say six months in, we realized that while the product had a lot of pipeline internationally, the real demand for this product was in the United States. And we had committed to investors that in 2023, we wanted to hold our operating expenses completely flat. So we wanted to grow, you know, mid-20s, but keep not grow our operating expenses. But then we realized all of a sudden, man, we have all this opportunity to grow this product in the United States. What do we do? You know, do we just raise operating expenses and piss off investors? Piss off the commitment we made to our board and to ourselves? And so we decided to take $4 million bucks from other parts of PAR and fund this move of this company in the United States, which is an enormous amount of money internally. And it's dozens of people. And so we as a team made that decision to go make that investment into this, this small product with like less than a million bucks of revenue that sucked money out of everything else that we did. And so that was a tough, tough thing for the team because, you know, the person that's running the business that's growing 30, 40% is like, dude, why am I, that, that's like money that I need to go hit my goals and I can't do it because I got to fund that. And so, you know, th- again, these are like the healthy challenges that you have into your year that you got to figure out. And that was a huge one, 4 million bucks for us within our, you know, is a big swing of money that had to come from everybody. What have you learned about your own role in these hard decisions back and forth where a dollar here comes from a dollar over there and there's tough decisions to be made? How do you, what have you learned about your own role in those and helping either moderate or maybe not take any part in it? Well, I think the first thing is that every CEO or every leader has to first educate. I think it's remarkable to me how many CEOs don't spend a lot of time educating their teams on what is ROI or like, how do we look at decisions or how do we make decisions or why did we make that decision? You know, one of the things that I think if people, you know, PAR isn't the greatest place in the world by any means, but one thing I think every employee who's worked here or left here would tell you is they hear from management way more than any other company they've worked at. Every other week I hold a town hall and I'll go through what's going on in the macroeconomic world, what's going on in the SaaS world. I'll do a topic of lemonade accounting stands. I'll do a topic on gross margins, AWS, every other week. Our business unit managers do one every week, every other week about their businesses. And so the leadership teams, the senior leadership teams, the middle management, everybody sort of becomes educated on how to be a business thinker over and over and over again. And so that education is like, it's, it's amazing how few people have it. There's amazing how many senior people I interview that couldn't tell you how a P&L works or how many sale, head of sales I've interviewed who couldn't tell you how to calculate gross margin or how to calculate CAC to LTV. They can say all the fancy stuff and like, you know, it's just a really interesting and it doesn't mean they're good or bad. It actually means like, hey, like if they don't know that stuff day one, how can I actually have an honest conversation with them? So to me, it's actually a, a way of looking at the world. Like, I think we have to educate constantly. Like, how do you make decisions? How do you how do hard great businesses built? Every quarter we do an offsite. I do a case study on an amazing software business, or I'll do a case study on something that fell apart. And again, you educate. Then the second thing is to create those conversations because those are super awkward conversations to have sometimes because you are taking money from somebody else and putting it there. And no matter what people, you know, we seek social cohesion, it's uncomfortable. And so it's a little bit like getting those conversations going and making them normal and, and making them, you know, proving out that that's the way we want to operate as part. And then the last one is making the tough decisions. And in the end, I think the leadership has to make that decision. And, you know, the worst way to do it is sort of crowdsource this and get to some middle way. Like I always say, turn left or turn right. And so I think those are the steps for us. And, you know, I would say the, the people that are the leaders of par now are the ones that could do all those things, could educate, could 
you know, make those really hard decisions that people don't want, but most importantly, foster those awkward conversations that nobody wants to have. I love the turn left or turn right phrase. You sound like you got a bunch of these phrases lying around. What are some other ones you enjoy using? Oh, I don't know if I have any other ones. Uh, like I, it's more like the, when I come, they come. You know, one I, I think people would say, say that I say a lot is, you know, data over anecdotes over and over again. I, I always think that, you know, there's so many roles within a company that doesn't always have an easy observable metric. Like, how do you measure the success of an HR team, a legal team, sometimes a finance team? You know, they're not setting sales goals and stuff. And so, you know, I'll say, well, let's, we need some data here. Let's do a survey of your peers. And how do they think about the HR team? Or how do they think legal teams products? You know, how, what does the sales team think of legal team? And then we have a data and we're like, okay, like you have an 80% success score here. And so I like data over anecdotes is one that I, I tend to use a lot. You know, I think data, another one I like to say is like data creates objectivity on subjective matters. You know, do we have problem here? Because everyone's saying we're having a problem, but why doesn't the data show that? And so then you're sort of bringing the data and you're like, okay, the objective data says this. We feel this way. What's the disconnect? So I don't know. I'll think of a few by the end, but I'm sure there's more. Those are great. So you have the, you talked about having a town hall every other week. You mentioned writing a company-wide email earlier in our conversation. What are the other ways that you're communicating with the team at large? Like that, that kind of teaching your team different aspects of the company or macro environments or what happened with this SaaS company. I'm really curious to learn more about that particular piece of your role. What are some other components to that? So, you know, I think it's actually all, it, it happened naturally. It wasn't ever like planned, but when we, when we first took over PARP, and again, we were a much smaller company then, we would have a, every week I would do a town hall, which is, I think, probably looking back a little too often. And then every week we'd have a weekly wrap where we'd wrap on what happened that week, our wins, our misses, hopefully a little bit of a financial update or a KPI update. And then every week I would have, you know, a leadership meeting with the direct reports where we'd go through so on and so forth. As we've gotten larger, you know, it's harder to do that. And so, you know, I would say we have this bi-weekly town hall that people join remotely. We do an executive team meeting every other week now where I am generally taking the executive team through what are the high priority items around the company, uh, what are key priorities for those in the room, and then usually a case study or in-depth conversation on something. So as an example, the next one coming up, you know, I wrote this, this email to our team about day one mentality, but it's about creating urgency in everything we do. And, you know, my perspective is, hey, we're losing that urgency as we've gotten bigger and we're having way too many conversations about the internal, not the external. And so, you know, I'm going to do a whole case study on companies that I believe have succumbed to that. And then, you know, I think the business unit leaders themselves do a bi-weekly sort of team, entire team call within their entire team, and then a weekly leadership meeting across their key leaders. And so it's kind of pushing that down to the leaders of the part. And I think the last thing is you have to create a culture that is, you know, somewhat open door. And what I mean by that is people have to feel comfortable bubbling challenges upward. And so I work really hard to make that common. So, you know, I will comment on Slack channels. One of the funny things I used to do was everybody was so scared, I think through PAR's prior culture of like reaching out to the quote unquote boss. And so I would send cold emails to individuals at PAR asking a question, but I'd put the whole email on the subject line or I'd use no punctuation to sort of make it like, hey, let's just, this is an iterative thing. Like, just come back to me. I don't want like the dear 70th comma, da, 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 da. I don't want someone proofing an email for two hours to send me. And so you just have to create a thing, a culture that fosters a lot more collaboration. And so I would do all sorts of that. And, and then the last thing I remember I did was, you know, one of our values is being owners, not renters. And, you know, to prove that I would sort of 
go out and say, if anybody finds a recurring meeting that we think is wasteful of our time and we can delete, you'd get $1,000. And so we would get that. Or if you found a dollar of savings, we'd give you five cents. And so, you know, we would just create programs that made it feel like it was more, more of your company. Again, create this ability to interact with the CEO, leadership team. And that is, again, something we have to constantly push because when people come from outside of PARV, I think they're a little bit like alarmed. They're like, wait, everybody in my team has, has a relationship with the CEO. And like, are you checking up on me all the time? And, and it's, it's you know, obviously not like that. But it is, it is really this, this understanding that like PAR is our company, not my company, but our company collectively with our investors, our board. And so, you know, if it's yours, you got, you got to speak up. And so I think that's the other part of it is not so much a formal thing, but an informal way of uh, organizing ourselves. How do you spend your time what, what, today? Like with the size that PAR is at, what does a typical week look like for you? And maybe how does it contrast with a couple of years ago? You know, I think when I started in the first couple of years, a lot of my journey at PAR was product. I was like the chief product officer to a degree. You know, it was not so much running everyone's day job in product, but like re- our product was problematic. It was breaking. Our customers were angry. You know, that was the number one product we had, challenge we had with the company was product. And so my efforts were really focused on that because if we could solve the product challenge, I felt confident we could solve the rest. And then later, you know, it evolved. Once we sort of felt like our product was more stable, it was working. Then I went out and sort of became the evangelist for PAR, which is, hey, we have this new idea of unifying your tech stack from having a bunch of point solutions to this unified solution of PAR. And I became salesman in chief. You know, I think our sales team would still tell you, I find a way to bring a couple of deals in every year just to show I still got it. But today I would say, you know, most of my time, and I was sort of breaking into pieces was, I'm very active with our key business leaders on the decision-making we make every single day. As much as I want to pretend I'm like strategic high level, I'm still very much in the weeds of a lot of those decisions because they're relatively individually still relatively small businesses where small things mean a lot. I spend a ton of time on the people side, both in running the team that reports to me, but the team outside of that, always making sure that I've got a pulse on what's happening, not just to the people that report to me, but throughout the organization. And then I spend a lot of time on the M&A side, which is M&A has been a really amazing tool for PAR. It seems to have worked. How do we amp it up? And I think, you know, M&A is hard to get right, particularly in software. You know, most deals don't work out in the long run. And so I try to lead that myself because I want to foresee those challenges, but also make sure that like we go in eyes wide open because, you know, every banker presentation, internal or external will tell you the deal makes sense. You know, it's all the stuff that you don't know going in. So I spent a lot of time on the M&A side today. What have you learned the most about the M&A side in terms of, I mean, you've been doing this for quite a while and you were an investor before and you've had a lot of M&A experience. I'd be curious today, what is your toolkit and set of requirements for a new acquisition or a new deal you're looking at? How has your view of M&A changed? So I don't, I don't think anything's changed from my perspective, like the economics of the deal. I don't think that'll ever change. That's still to me is very formulaic. You as any you know, investor or operator can do the math to figure out if the deal pencil out. I think what I have a much greater appreciation for is the people side. Particularly you know, in technology, where oftentimes the companies you're buying are startups, whether they're five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, they still very much have the heritage of that startup. And you know, when you acquire a business that's been run by a founder, and those employees now report to somebody else. It's almost like changing churches, you know, or changing religions. You bought somebody else's spiel for a long time, and all of a sudden that person's not in charge anymore. They may not even be there anymore. And now you got to believe somebody else. And so, you know, one of the things that I think we've done a really good job is like we've gone to those organizations and we start day one and say, hey, everyone's going to tell you nothing's going to change. Of course, everything's going to change. Your benefits are going to be different. Your logo's different. Your swag is different. Like your computer's different. You know, don't go in there saying nothing's going to change and be really upfront about that. And then be a fantastic listener and listen, 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 because you want to keep what's worked at that organization while then figuring out what you need to apply. And so um, one of the coolest things that I think we've had a par is 
our retention of employees post acquisition, I, I would argue is probably better than anybody in software, at the very least. Like we retain the people we have no business retaining because I think they buy into our culture. We do a really, really thoughtful job of that. The second thing I'd say, if I give a second reason, which is the one that I think other people forget often is the quality of the product matters so much in software. We have been so lucky to acquire good products. But you know, if you buy a bad product, you know, you can't sell your way out of that. You can't, you know, market your way out of that. And so buying a high quality product that doesn't have loads of technical debt that can scale, you know, it saves you, you know, it's worth the premium to a degree because it allows you to to build a future. Because if you buy a product, you know, the founders will leave and then you got a product that's not working, like you spend a lot of time fixing the past instead of working on the future. And so those are two things. I think our ability to like, you know, any company's ability to win the people, create a plan, create that transparency, understanding alignment and execution is, is important. And then buying the right product, you know, it's easy to buy revenue. It's much harder to buy great revenue and great product. What distinguishes a good product from a, you know, so-so or product that's not going to be a good fit for you? In the enterprise, it's pretty easy. Will that product sell? Does it have the needs of the, of the customer? And can it scale? You know, the last one's the hardest one, which is lots of people can listen to customers, design a product, model product, but can it scale is very hard. You know, distributed computing, like restaurants, it's hard. It's like you, you may sell something to McDonald's, but McDonald's has got thousands of restaurants that have to run the same thing and they're updating with new data. That's pretty hard. And so, you know, first and foremost is, do, have they built the product that can solve your customer's needs? It's a little bit of like, are you buying a project or are you buying a product? You know, there are a lot of really good things. You're like, oh, like they've got like pretty much what we need, but we need, I need to do this, this, and this, and this to get into our product, into our end market. And, you know, all of times say like, all right, like what's the timeline for that, 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 and that, and let's double it and let's double the cost. And then do we still want to do the deal knowing what our competitors will say about it? And so it's about saying, oh, wow, like this product is actually going to wow our customers, be number one or number two in our market from a product perspective. And then we think we can scale it and so on and so forth. Because, you know, once you figure out you have the right product, right price, then it's like, what's the value you add to that? Like, you know, are you a private equity firm or are you an operating business? And if you're an operating business, I think you got to sort of prove out that that product underneath you is better than it was as a standalone basis. What do you think has changed in software over the last couple of years? From the outside looking in, it appears PAR has become more of a kind of all-in-one solution. Do you think that's a broader trend within SaaS or in something you've identified? Or is that something more specific to your, your market that your customers are wanting specifically? I, I think they're categorically for our market, for sure that's happening. I think industry-wise, it's probably happening too. I, I think there's like a platformization happening across everywhere, which is we all probably feel we're spread too thin and have too many products to do what we do. I mean, I, you know, think about the average person. They've got email, they've got Slack, they've got WhatsApp, they've got iMessage, they've got Asana, they've got Jira. They have like so many tools to do their job. It's probably a little frustrating. Like I know sometimes I'm like, did I check every little communication device to make sure I'm up to speed? And that's a very small tidbit of like the workflow of the daily average white collar worker. And if you're a restaurant, in our example, like you have that times 10. You've got all of a sudden in the last five years, you've added, you know, a new payment solution, QR code ordering, you've ordered, created a mobile app, you create a loyalty app. You create a supply chain software. You've created a new HR software. I mean, you've had all these products just slam into it and you're not getting the value from it. And so I think what we see in restaurants is that our customers are looking for vendor consolidation, sim- simplicity, because they've already bought a bunch of software. I think that's probably analogous to most markets where, you know, I look at your iPhone and I'm like, oh my God, it is really confusing that I have so many apps that like do so many different things. I'd rather have, you know, five apps that are like super apps to help my life be a little bit simpler. I think in the enterprise, that's a more acute problem because most companies that buy software aren't software companies. And so they don't have the bandwidth, the tooling to manage all that. Restaurant companies, illustratively, you know, 
a thousand store restaurant chain might have a hundred total corporate employees, maybe a hundred and you know, maybe 10, 15 of them work in the IT department. And now those five or six are in charge of like software products to their stores. And so like, you know, when that same group is managing 25 products per store versus 10, like their life sucks. And I think our job is to simplify it for them. What else do you think is changing in software? What stands out to you as a trend that you're paying attention to? Well, you know, I think th- there's like the consumerization of the enterprise is like it is it's forever going to be a trend. I think AI will play a huge role into that. But, you know, as, as, as the generation of the workforce uh, changes from those that are came from a generation that didn't use technology to the 20 year old who grew up on Snapchat, TikTok, and, you know, modern software, their expectations at their work match their expectations outside of work. And so I think the way we interact with software will have to change. You know, when my, you know, littlest kids are working at McDonald's one day, like they're going to expect that software to work just like all the software they use their entire life. And you're seeing that happen. And so I think AI will accelerate both the the UI, UX of how we interact with these products. And that's, you know, to go for a long time. And then obviously AI will kind of disrupt and make things work a lot easier. But I think we're still a long way through that, at least the industry that we operate in. But I do think this is this massive trend of the consumerization really, really matters. And, and and where I think it'll matter more is that over time, you know, every product is commoditized. And over time, the what makes a product sticky is like the workflow. Like how does it integrate in your life where you can't rip it out? What's amazing about, you know, our products at point of sale is that once you're on it, it's it's hard to rip out. And you can either take advantage of that and screw your customers, or you can deliver them an amazing experience where they don't even think about that. And, you know, we want to do the latter. And I think that the way you do that is the combination of having all the features, functionality, and modernity that they're used to, but combine that with UI and UX that is just like their day-to-day life. And then they're like, gosh, this is, this is a no-brainer. So, you know, I think that's, that's one, one trend that will carry on for a while. Have you read the Will Larson book, An Elegant Puzzle, the engineering systems and design book? It's a Stripe Press one. It's literally the book I'm using to hold up the microphone that we're... <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I picked that up a few months ago. I really, really enjoyed it, especially like the discussions on, it was kind of like an obvious thing in hindsight, but as you grow a product team and hire engineers, new engineers need to be trained by veteran engineers so that they understand how products work or how the code base works and all that. And, but that takes, so that takes away from their time doing new features or technical debt or what have you. What have been some biggest takeaways for you in growing product teams and running product teams, either from the book or just your own experience or from peers or what have you? So this is going to sound really basic, but to me, a product and an engineering team are no different than any other team at par. The 80-20 of it is still the leadership and how that team works together than it is anything technical about how they operate. So are there teams that have better onboarding? Of course. Are there teams that have better documentation? Yeah. But those do make huge differences to the life of of a scaling team. But in the end, it's the quality of that management and that leadership that, that works out. I'm never surprised when somebody with no technical background becomes a great product manager. It's, it's because they're able to, they've probably, to become that great product manager, have worked very hard to become technical enough, but they've also won the, the trust of that engineering team that they are making the right calls for that customer. And so that's one thing. The other thing I would say is, I'm still shocked how many times when I interview product leaders, those that say, oh, I don't really talk to customers that much, it blows my mind. I still think it's a really basic thing, but I think if you want to be good at product management, you've got to spend time with customers and salespeople. And it's you know one of the first things I ask when I go look at companies we're acquiring is when I get to that second level of diligence, you're meeting the head of product or the head of sales. It's like, what's your cadence with the product guy? What's your cadence with the sales guy? And you know, 
nine out of 10 companies, there's almost none. It's just we meet at the executive leadership meeting. And that all that means to me is like the, the information, all that amazing information that your customers are telling you every day is not going to your product team. And it's going through a massive filter that is probably heavily biased towards you know revenue and not like future-proofing your company. What's a helpful cadence or what cadence makes sense for you in having your both sales team and product teams talking to customers? So one customer over the course of a year, like how often might they hear from a sales or product leader? It's tough to answer because every business is different, but you know, we hold QBRs and SBRs with our customers. And so every quarter, you know, we're sort of sharing our information, their information. I think that's a great way to sort of collect that feedback across many, many different customers and share it with the product team. Uh, and so that's the way we do it. I think it's a really great way because you're it's straight from the horse's mouth. But if you've got a good leadership team, you you know your sales leaders are speaking on every their weekly or biweekly call, talking about here's what we're learning, here's what we're hearing, and products in that room having it. You know, just today we had a go to market offsite at our offices, and you know we had one of our product leaders there. And like, why do we have a product leader there, even though they're not really going to make a decision about it if we restructure sales this way or that way? It's because that person can like then absorb everything the sales folks are hearing from the customer. And then the way they chime in is like, hey, like, did you guys know we're building this and this and that? Like, you don't need to create two systems for that. We already, you know, like that, that collaboration, I think, has to happen naturally. So I think it's a little bit of a function of the leadership style of the person in charge. As we close out here, any last pieces of advice that you often share with other SaaS CEOs or, or maybe peers that share with you? Oh, gosh, there's so many. You know, I'll share something that I share with emerging leaders a part that I think is important. I think it's defining your leadership style. You know, I, I think that being authentic is a single greatest piece of advice you can give to any leader. What I mean by that is when someone gets promoted at par to be a leader at par, I try to spend a lot of time with them early on and saying, define what your style is going to be. They're the leaders that we have that are, you know, the incredible orators, the, char- the charisma that is like unbeatable. And behind that, they have layers of depth and so on and so forth. And that's a type of leadership that people can rally behind. We also have like the servant leaders who are a lot, little bit quieter that have as powerful or as senior of a job, but are like very, very focused on like leading by example, putting great you know content. You know, then we have leaders that are part of the strategists that like inspire the team because they're so strategic and you're like, oh my God, I didn't think about that. And, and, and they can execute on the strategy. And, and the reason I say that is when you get a leadership role, whether it's ego, whether it's, you know, inferiority complex or imposter syndrome, like you start acting like what you think you should be. You try to be charismatic. You try to tell jokes. You try to be bigger than you really are. And I think it's it's a mistake I see over and over and over again, where what people are oftentimes looking for, I think our politics are turning into this too, it's like they just want to know who the person is and then and, and work that way. And then I take it a second step further and I say, once you define who you are, and you should know who that is by the time you're a leader, you should probably figure out like, hey, I'm going to be that charismatic guy or I'm going to be this, like you kind of know who you are and it's, it's, it's you'd be surprised when people try to screw that up. Then I go to that leader and after they come back to 90 days, I say, all right, now I want to know what motivates every single person that reports into you. And that's how you deliver success to, to that. Because if you don't know what's inspiring each one of your team members, it's problematic because you don't know how to incentivize and, and drive them. So as an example, we have a leaders on, on the leadership team that I work with every single day. There's a leader on there that I'm pretty sure she has no idea what she's paid. But what is she looking for? It's like she wants to know that she's in the flow of all the information. And so in the back of my mind, I'm like, all right, I got to make sure I call her like every other day because when she feels out of the loop, it's when she feels alienated and scared. You know, we have another leader at par is one of our best emerging leaders at par, he really only cares about one thing, which is like, I want objective metrics of success. And then I'm like, all right, he does not need the pat on the back at all. In fact, that actually pisses him off when I call him out in front of the whole team. 
what he wants is like, is he succeeding against where the goals that we set up for him? There are other people that are surely financially motivated. There are other people that like live for the pat on the back from the CEO. And that's really what means more than anything else. You have to kind of define what's going to motivate the people around you and know who that is. And it won't be uniform because everybody's motivated by something else. Everybody has some insecurity or something from their childhood that takes them away. And, you know, for me, it's figuring out what is that thing that inspires. Is it fear? Like there's something on our team at par where like fear motivates him. And I could literally go to him and say, here's millions of dollars or here's a pat on the back or call him out in front of the town hall all the time. And it really wouldn't matter. What motivates him is like a little bit of fear of failure. And so I know with him, I could be like, I can't believe we screwed this up. We're off by 2% here. Like what's going on? Because that gets him. And, and the point I'm making is that like to be a great leader, a little bit is like being a psychologist. And you've got to be able to not only create the right strategy, create the excitement, the energy behind that execution, but you also have to be a tactician to a degree. And I think you do that by figuring out who the people that are working with you and what motivates them individually to create that collective success. Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your time, really enjoying it and to chat with you. Thank you for a little bit more podcasting time. I enjoyed your other episodes and it's good to, to chat with you more. Thanks. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts on our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com. Thank you.